0: Good morning. Uh, It's good to be here. I have also been away for a couple of weeks, and so it's really good to be back. Uh, I'm excited for CBC at the Movies next week. It's like my favorite series of the year. Uh, I am going to be preaching on everything, everywhere at once, and I kind of agree. It's so weird, but it's going to be a good sermon. So I hope you guys come for that. Um, Well, today is kind of a just kind of an in-between Sunday in our kind of preaching calendar, and I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk about just a topic that's been on my mind for kind of a while now. Uh, a few years ago, I bought this book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Actually, I think I bought it. There's a slight chance I accidentally stole it from Pastor Nick, but let's just let's assume that I, that I bought it. Uh, but anyway, this is a, an exploration of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, this idea that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to be honest, this book just kind of blew me away. I found it to be really interesting and really impactful. And so ever since then, I've been thinking about maybe planning a sermon series around this book or or trying to put together a few messages, and I could never quite figure out how to do that. And so I wanted to just talk about it briefly and just kind of scratch the surface on it this morning. And I think at the heart of this book is a really cool invitation to see this doctrine, to see this idea of the Trinity in a new way. Uh, at least for me, it was eye-opening to realize that there's so much joy and delight in this idea, but I was just completely missing out. Uh, last week our family was in uh, Idaho and Wyoming, and kind of we spent some time with Alyssa's family, and then we went to Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park, and it was a just a great trip. And on one of the days, we decided to take a a little bit of a day off from, you know, outdoorsy stuff and national parks and hiking. And we bought an activity pass at this place called Snow King Mountain. And basically, you know, this is like a ski resort and they have summer activities. So there's like an alpine slide, a mountain coaster, a bungee trampoline, scenic gondola, mini golf, a, a bunch of really fun stuff. And we had a great day. But one of the most interesting activities that they had there was this uh, huge maze. And so this is kind of a big, you know, person-sized maze. It's probably about the size of this sanctuary, you know, kind of just walls, you know, maybe seven feet high. And the cool thing about this maze was obviously you have to, you know, find your way through the maze. But on top of that, it was also a scavenger hunt. So they gave you this little paper, and there was like seven or eight different animals, and you had to find a picture of the not the actual animal, but you had to find a picture of the animal, and then you had like a little puncher thing, and you would punch out that animal on your, uh, on your sheet. And then you also had to find four letters, M-A-Z-E, for maze. So anyway, uh, the, the goal of this maze was to do all those things and to see how long it took you. So the kids, uh, Kaya and Gray, they decided immediately that they wanted to, to do this by themselves. Like the, the lady who was at the front was like, do you guys want to be in teams? Like, you know, dad and mom versus kids are like, no, 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 every man for himself. We're all doing this alone. So we all go in at the same time, but we're competing to see who comes out first. So anyway, I go in, and at first I'm having a blast. I'm doing great. I'm finding all these animals, and, and, and it gets to the point where I literally thought to myself, okay, I better slow down. Right? Like, I don't want to finish super fast, and the kids will feel bad, and you know, I won't be in there to help them, so let I me mean, just take it easy. So I kind of stopped running around the maze. I'm, I'm taking my time. But at a certain point, I begin to realize that like, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. Right, like I've been through the whole maze. I feel like I've done every twist and turn in every corner, and I'm still missing two animals and two letters. So I'm like, okay, this is actually a little harder than I thought. A few minutes later, I realize I haven't seen Alyssa in a long time. Like, she's not in the maze anymore. Okay, Alyssa's done. That's fine. Alyssa's really good at looking for stuff, so it didn't really phase me. A couple more minutes pass. It's like, where's Kaya? Kaya is not in the maze anymore. And then finally, after like five minutes, I realized, now it's just me. I'm alone in this maze. My 8- and 10-year-old are done. And now it's like, it's not fun anymore, right? Like, I'm not having a good time. I'm not like, oh, this is awesome, this is so cool. It's like, where are these stinking letters? Where is the deer? Where is this moose? And I'm turning around every corner. I'm feeling kind of frustrated. And so finally, after about five minutes of being in this maze by myself, I just gave up. I walked out of this kid's maze with my punch card incomplete and everyone else got a prize and I didn't. (laughs) And so that evening, right, we're reflecting on the day, we're talking about all the activities, and you know, the kids and Alyssa, they're like, oh, you know what was cool? That maze, that was really fun. And I was like, I guess so. It was, all right. it was kind of tainted as much as it was a, a, a cool thing. What it had become for me was not an activity to enjoy, but a puzzle that I just couldn't solve. And even now when I think about it, I, I don't like it. So the moral of the story is, if you're ever looking for anything, don't ask me. I'm the last person you should come to because I'm not good at looking for stuff. But obviously, more than that, uh, it it makes me think a little bit about how sometimes I view the Trinity. Uh, And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you, you might kind of relate to this feeling that it's easy sometimes to think of the Trinity as this really challenging, confusing doctrine. Almost like this maze or puzzle that's impossible to solve. I mean, here are the basics of this doctrine. Okay, so as Christians, here's what we believe about the Trinity. We believe that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, each person within the Trinity is fully God, but at the same time, they are completely distinct in their personhood. So each is distinct as a person within the Godhead, and there's three of them, but there's still only one God, right? And and the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. And so it kind of, you know, if you think about it, it feels a little bit like a cruel biblical riddle, right? Like there's three, but there's one, and one is not three, but three is one. You know, it's it's very difficult for us to understand. And so I think a lot of the times when we talk about the Trinity, when, when I go back to my you know, my my seminary classes, the focus tends to be on understanding and explaining how this all works. And for sure there's value in that. Correct doctrine is super important. There's a time and a place for those kinds of questions. And so if you're wondering more about how this all works, Pastor Eric will be back next Sunday. (laughs) But I do think that one of the things that happens is that we end up just kind of feeling frustrated by this kind of puzzle. And we actually don't really want to think about the deep questions about what this means, and and not just how it works, but how it impacts our life and our faith. And one of the things that this book really impressed upon me is what a beautiful and inviting idea this can be, and how much it can help us to know and love and trust God in a deeper way. So my hope for this morning is not necessarily To unpack too much of the puzzle. We're going to talk about the Trinity and a little bit about how it works, but my hope is that we would kind of get a taste of some of the delight of this just really amazing doctrine together. So let's go ahead and and look at some scripture. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Now just a quick note, uh, one of the interesting things about uh, this doctrine is that the word Trinity never appears in the Bible, that specific word, right? It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. Uh, but in spite of that, we see this idea of the Trinity all over the pages of Scripture, this idea that there is Father, Son, and Spirit, and each one is God. And our passage this morning is, is probably maybe the simplest picture and the most tangible picture we have of the Trinity in Scripture. And this takes place right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he's preparing to begin preaching and teaching and announcing the good news of the kingdom. He comes uh, to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. And we see this short uh, but powerful scene unfold. Mark 1, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan just as Jesus was coming up out of the water he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven a voice came from heaven you are my son whom i love with you i am well pleased now again as i said it's pretty short and it might not look like much but it's significant on one hand, because we see all three persons of the Trinity here in this scene, each one kind of with their own distinct role and personhood. The Father is speaking and showing love to the Son. The Spirit is uh, anointing and a- empowering the Son for ministry. And the Son is being baptized and prepared for his mission. And this picture is very significant, not just because we catch a glimpse of all three members of the Trinity. It's not just because it's like, oh, here they all are. But it's significant because it points us to the deeper reality of what the Trinity is all about, what this relationship really means. Uh, One of my favorite moments of this past summer was our end-of-the-year party for one of our small groups, Stone Community Group. We got together at the Kim's house uh, for a pool party, and almost our entire group is there, so there's like 40 of us packing into their community pool. I feel sorry for all the other people who were there that day. But it was, it was so much fun, right? The kids are running around together. They're playing and swimming. You know, they're all jumping into the pool in unison. The adults are hanging out and chatting, eating, uh, just having a good time. And obviously, these moments are fun in a vacuum, right? Like, it's fun because we're together. In this moment, it's just a joy to spend time together. But I also think what's, what's really special about those kinds of occasions is that it hints at a deeper reality, right? The pool party is a reflection of, it's, it's a manifestation of all of the community that has built up over this past year and the past several years, right? The pool party is so good and so much fun because we have all this history together. All this time just coming to know each other and, and love each other and trust each other. And so we have all these stories. We have all these memories that we share. We, we know each other really well. And we know what makes each other tick and laugh and what we all enjoy. And so if you were to come in and just kind of be a, a fly on the wall for this party, uh, you would see obviously some fun and fellowship. But you would also see a picture right, of the community that exists in our small group. And in the same way, this moment at Jesus' baptism, as we see the Father, Son, and Spirit all together, it's not just about this one moment they're sharing together. It hints at a deeper reality, this real community that has existed within the Trinity for all eternity. So, right, so on one hand, we see, we see the Father doing what the Father always does. He loves his Son. In the passage, we hear a voice that says, that he, God is well-pleased with Jesus. And again, it's not just, I'm pleased with you right now. This is a reflection of the Father's eternal disposition towards the Son. God loves the Son. He, he delights in Him. He finds joy in Him and, and blesses Him. We see the Spirit doing what the Spirit always does. In this scene, the Spirit is descending like a dove on Jesus and kind of bringing this light and love from the Father, from heaven, into the physical world. The Spirit is the member of the Trinity that stirs up the love and joy of the Father. And the Son is there doing what the Son does. He receives the love of the Father. He's filled, he's empowered by that love to glorify him, to love him, and to obey him. And so what we see in this baptism seen in Mark 1 is a glimpse of what the Trinity is like and why it's so important. That really, at the heart of what God is about, the heart of what makes God, God, is this kind of perfect, loving community. Uh, In his book, uh, the author Michael Reeves, he asked this kind of strange question. And this kind of seems like the kind of question that, like, my son Grayson might ask me. He's one of those curious kids that just just his mind just kind of keeps on going and going and going, so he asks all these things that I really can't answer, like, you know, what is heaven going to be like, and will we have bodies when we get to heaven, or will we have wings, and what did Jesus do between the three days when he died and rose again, and, you know, just these questions you really can't answer, and Reeves asks a question that feels kind of silly at first, what was God doing before creation? I can totally see Grayson asking me that, and me saying, I don't know, dude, like, we don't know. But it turns out the Bible gives us kind of a rough idea of the answer to this. In John 17, Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. You loved me before the creation of the world, before anything else was made, before any other existence, you were there, I was there, and you loved me, presumably through the Spirit. As it turns out, this picture of love and community that we see in this short scene of Jesus' baptism, this is what God has been doing for all eternity. This is what God was doing before creation, before he created the world. Each member existed in perfect community. C.S. Lewis says this about the Trinity. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. This is such a different way of thinking about God's character, not as kind of a solitary being, but that at his core, at the core of who he is, is a dance. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga adds this, the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life therefore overflows with regard for others. See, what we see, right, is that the Trinity isn't just some academic, intellectual truth to be consumed. It's not just a puzzle to be solved. The Trinity tells us who God is. And that at the heart of who He is, is this perfect, loving community. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying just that God is in community, but that He is community at the core of His being because He is three in one. Now, and I know that's a lot, and so you kind of have to let that sink in for a second, but this has some really important implications, and these are going to relate directly to you and I, to our life, to our faith, to, to who we are in our relationship with God, and we're going to get to that in a second, but let's talk about these, these two implications. First, this means that love really is central to the character of God. It is most central, in fact. So I think we're all familiar with the phrase, God is love. We've all heard that. We've all probably said it. We've all thought about it. But see, because God exists in perfect community, this really is an unchanging part of his character. This is what he has always been doing. All right, consider this for a second. If there was no Trinity, then God couldn't be loving without creation. Right? Does that make sense? Like, for, if you, God couldn't be a lot of things without creation. Like, let's do a, a little thought exercise here. Okay? Close your eyes. Don't fall asleep. Imagine, just for a second, a non-triune God, right? A God who is just God, a singular God, one guy. And, and, and this is God before creation, right? Just in the vacuum of space, it's God and a, just a bunch of blackness or whatever you imagine without creation, and 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 what is he doing? Right what what could God be doing as a singular non-trinitarian god? Right? He's probably just there. Right? He's sitting there. Maybe he's thinking about stuff. Maybe he's contemplating existence. You guys can open your eyes now by the way. You're going to fall asleep if I let you do that too long. Right, but he's just there. He's just, like you he can't really do anything. He certainly can't be loving Because there's no one to love. It's just him and the vacuum. There's no one to give himself to, sacrifice for, lift up and honor and glorify. No one to be good to, no one to be faithful to, no one to care about and provide for because it's just him. Now, of course, he could be powerful, he could be mighty, he could be wise, and he could eventually choose to be loving under the right circumstances, But that love is always going to be conditional. On the other hand, a Trinitarian God is love. And not only is he love, but to love is what comes most natural for him. Because it's who he is to love and bless the other members of the Trinity. Now, a second implication of this community is just as important. Because God exists in this perfect Trinitarian relationship... He exists in a state of perfect satisfaction. God is, in, his, in himself, apart from anything else, he is wholly complete and without any need. Right, when you think about God as perfectly relational within this trinity, he exists in perfect love, acceptance, affirmation. He is known and blessed simply in his Trinitarian being. There are no relational deficits for God. God is never needy. He never craves attention or affection or worship. He never feels unloved. He never has a need that goes unmet. There's never anything he can't do outside of his own perfect existence. And this is really hard for us to imagine because it's kind of the opposite of how we are even in relationship. Like, I think about my own life, and I realize that I have been so blessed with so many good relationships. I have an amazing wife who loves me, and I love, and and we have a great relationship. We uh, drove 14 hours home from uh, Wyoming in one day, and we just sat the whole time, and we just talked and talked, and it was amazing. I have great kids who I love to spend time with. I have a great relationship with my mom, who I, I work with her, and we still get along, if you can imagine that. I have two amazing small groups. I have a boss who feels more like a brother than a boss. I have been blessed with so many great people in my life who love me and support me and affirm me. But at the same time, I operate at a huge relational deficit. I I find that despite all the encouragement and love I receive, I still need so much I crave attention. I need affection. I need to be reminded that I'm loved, like, by the hour, by the minute, by the second, right? Time goes by, and it's like, oh, man, do, do I actually, am I actually just kind of a bad person, right? We need all this constant pouring into us, but within the Trinity, God needs none of this. There is constant, perfect love between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And so completely apart from creation, completely apart from you and I, God exists in perfect love, perfect community, and he's perfectly satisfied. And so this brings us to kind of the the heart of the matter. And there's a lot of of things in this book about what this means. And again, we're just scratching the surface. Uh, Just as a side note, if you're interested in this message at all, I I definitely recommend the book. Uh, I have one copy, so first come, first serve if you want to borrow it. But... Really, if you think about what this means for us, uh, this is where it gets really good. See, because of all of this, God existing and loving perfect community, it means something really important for creation. And this comes to like another, you know, eight year old question, another question Grayson might ask me is why did God create anything? Right? Like, if God exists in, in perfect, relationship perfectly loving he has no needs or deficits then why make humanity why create existence at all to put it simply why do we exist if god doesn't need anything and the answer when we really consider the idea of the trinity is that god creates not because he needs something but because of the overflow the abundance of his love See, because God exists in this perfect community, he doesn't want to get something from us. He wants to give. He created because he is so full of love that he wants to share that love. Here's what Reeves says. Since God the Father has eternally loved the Son, it is entirely characteristic of him to turn and create others that he might also love them. Creation is about the extension of that love outward, so that it might be enjoyed by others. Theologians have have compared um, God the Father to to a fountain or a spring. And it's just kind of flowing with love and joy and affection and blessing. And God is just pouring it out upon his Son. But it's so abundant, there's so much that that love is made to be shared. God creates because he wants to extend it, and it's bursting forth from his character. Going back to our passage in John 17, Jesus says that this is exactly why God created. After he says that the Father has loved him since before the creation of the world, the passage continues. He says, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them. God, I, I will, Father, I will reveal you. I will show people what you're about. I will deliver the message of who you are so that the way that you've loved me will now be experienced in them, and that I may, myself may be in them. And this is Jesus' prayer for us, that we would know what we were made for, what we were created for, is to know this overflowing love of the Father. And I think this is so important. If, if we can grasp this idea, if this can become the way we frame who God is in our minds, then it, it helps us to understand, I think, the very basic foundations of the gospel. See, I think one of the hardest things to believe and I don't mean this intellectually, but I mean believe at like a deep gut level is to believe that you don't have to change God's mind about you. I think for most of us, if you've been going to church for a while, you, you probably believe that God created you. You probably believe that God loves you. And hopefully you believe in grace and forgiveness and the gospel that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. But I think deep down there's a sneaking suspicion that kind of at the core of who we are and at the core of our relationship with God is this, this unlovableness deep within us. Maybe there's a part of you that when push comes to shove believes that we exist because like, God needs something from us. That I was created because God wanted me to worship him or serve him or, you know, live out my purpose for him. Now, don't get me wrong. God has called us to worship and he's called us to live out a purpose. But he didn't create us because he needs those things. And your existence is not a function of God wanting something from you. Again, it is a function of him wanting to give you this love. At the core of this relationship with God is a God who wants to love and bless and pour out on you. And I think this is one of the the things that the Bible tells us very clearly. This is one of the foundations of the gospel that that we kind of miss or or we kind of miss how amazing it is if we don't really understand this Trinitarian idea, this idea of God eternally pouring out his love on the Son and this being ingrained in who he is. See, because one of the foundations of the gospel is that by grace, by, by, the, by the blood of Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters in, into God's family. And God isn't just saying, hey, hey I want to kind of welcome you all in and, and you guys all become a, a part of this family. He's saying, I want to adopt you and I want to love you the same way that I have loved my son for all of eternity. That is why we exist. That's why God created us. That's why God sent Jesus when we turned away from him. Is because he actually wants to love us that much. Same way that he loved Jesus. We see this throughout scripture, Romans 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, this glory of God's relationship. Galatians 4, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. First John 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. So you set aside the circumstances of your birth, your, your parents, your family history, all of that. At the end of the day, you exist because God wanted you to share in the love that he's had for Jesus since before the creation of the world. Because he wants to make you a son or daughter in the same sense that Jesus is his son. It's that kind of love. And the invitation of the Christian life is simply to experience that, to step into that, to receive that. I love that idea that C.S. Lewis called this a dance. Uh, other author, authors have likened it to kind of like a, a musical harmony. And this is this idea that the eternity, right, this, this Trinitarian God for all time, as far back as, as time goes, God has been dancing in this perfect relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect satisfaction, And he created you because he wanted you to join the party. Because he wanted you to have that exact relationship and be a part of just his overflowing and abundant love. And this is what it's all about. This is the point of the gospel. This is what church and community are about, what faith and obedience and purpose are about. It's not about changing God's mind about us but it's about stepping into this dance of Trinitarian love and community. So again, there's a lot more that we could say about this in terms of salvation, and Christian life, and spiritual growth, and evangelism. But for this morning, just let's stop here. And if nothing else, my hope is that this idea just helps you to see how good and amazing God is And it frames your picture of how he sees you. Yes, we have to reckon with the reality of sin. And the reality that that we do fall short, but at the heart of it is to understand God's desire for us and our relationship with him. I hope this gives you a greater desire to step into a life of knowing him and trusting him and following him to see that it is this amazing dance that we get to step into and that we would do that with joy. Uh, Let's pray together.